0: We are uh, continuing on uh, as we approach Christmas with some uh, Christmas uh, themes here. If you can throw that up there, Mike. And we're going to talk today about uh, our big God. And our text is based in Luke. And it reads like this. Now in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus to register all the empire for taxes. This was the first registration taken when... uh, 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 whatever, Mr. Q was governor. I even got that word before I read this. I read this, but uh, <laughs> here we go. Uh, was governor of Syria. Everyone went to his own town to be registered, so Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to the city of David called Bethlehem, because he was one of the house and family line of David. He went to be registered with Mary, who was promised in marriage to him. And he was expecting a child while they were there. The time came for her to deliver her child. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in strips of cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Now, one of the questions that comes up uh, around uh, Christmas is uh, when exactly was he born? right. Luke chapter two obviously tells us Jesus was born. But when was he born? Uh. Well, the Bible actually doesn't give a date. There's no date in here that you can find or month or year that tells us when uh, Jesus was born. Uh, But there are some clues. Like in that text we just read, it said that it was during the time of Caesar Augustus. Now, we know he lived from uh, 27 B.C. to 14 A.D. So obviously it was in that time. But even more closely, we read in Matthew chapter 2. That it says after uh, Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, that magic came uh, came from the east and uh, came to Jerusalem. And so King Herod died in 4 B.C., okay, uh, late March or early April. So Jesus had to have been born before the year 4 B.C. And we know that when Herod was trying to get rid of Jesus and he kills all the babies in Bethlehem, that he killed all the babies up to two years of age. Uh, We know from the text that the Magi showed up sometime after Jesus was born, not right at the stable. And so Jesus could have been up to two years uh, old when Herod died. And so uh, most people figured that Jesus was born in either uh, 6 B.C. or 5 B.C., not in the year zero because there's actually no such thing, right? It goes uh, 1 B.C. to 1 A.D., And so he was born in uh, 6 or 5 B.C. Now, uh, what day was he born? Was it December 25th? Well, again, the Bible doesn't say. It doesn't give us a date of Jesus' birth. In fact, uh, the only date uh, the Bible does give us that we can accurately look at is the date of his crucifixion and his resurrection. We do know those dates. But this is why the, the early church, when you look at Christian history, the very early, early church didn't seem to celebrate the birth of Jesus. They celebrated Easter, and of course, his crucifixion, resurrection, but not his, his birthday. And there wasn't really even talk about trying to find a date for Jesus' birth until the, the late second, early third century. And so we look at some of the early church fathers, like Clement of Alexandria, who lived uh, from 150 to 215. Uh, he favored May 20th, but also noted in some of his writings that others argued for April 18th, April 19th, and May 28th. Uh, Hippolytus uh, favored January 2nd. Others in this time suggested November 17th, November 20th, March 25th, December 25th, and January 6th. And we see by the 4th century that the Western Church celebrated the birth of Jesus on the 25th, and the Eastern Church celebrated the birth of Jesus on January 6th. And uh, later, the Eastern Church uh, moved in to celebrate uh, Christmas on the 25th. There are still some churches today, like the Armenian Church, that celebrate the birth of Jesus on January 6th, even to this day. Now, why was December 25th chosen? Well, the popular theory is that when Christianity was legalized, that people uh, began to, you know, we need to convert all these pagans to celebrate these various uh festivals to the sun let's just kind of christianize those festivals like the uh festival to uh the unconquerable sun which was made on december 25th in the year 274 uh, a.d to change that into a christian thing so we can convert other people but did you know that theory is not found anywhere in any christian writings until the 12th century But what is found is in early Christian writings is that the reason uh, December 25th and January 6th were chosen was because this was nine months uh, after they believed he was conceived. And what the thinking was in those days was that Jesus was actually conceived on the day he was crucified. And the Bible does tell us when he was crucified. And so the Western church with their calendar uh, saw March 25th as the date of crucifixion. Therefore, that was the day he was conceived, and nine months uh, prior to that, or or after that, is December 25th. The Eastern Church, using their Greek calendar, uh, looked at April 6th as the day Jesus was crucified, and therefore the day he was conceived, and therefore nine months after is January 6th. This is what we find in early Christian writings, that the dates were not uh, chosen to You know, convert a pagan holiday into a Christian holiday. It was chosen because of his conception and therefore birth. Now, later on, of course, there were some obviously some ideas from paganism that were adopted into Christmas. But uh, uh, still, we don't exactly know when he was born. But you know what? December 25th is a great day to celebrate it. And so that's why we we certainly do. Now, uh, we know from uh, an Old Testament prophecy that Jesus was to be born in Bethlehem. It says, you, O Bethlehem, are only a small village among all the people of Judah. Yet a ruler of Israel will come from you, one whose origins are from the distant past. And this was a prophecy about the coming Messiah, that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. Now, if you know the story of, uh, found in earlier the Gospels, uh, when Mary finds out she's pregnant and she's about 14 or 15 years of age, uh, they're living in Nazareth, not in Bethlehem. And, and so uh, Jesus had to be born in Bethlehem, but this is no, like, short walk, okay? Bethlehem is here, and you go all the way up to Nazareth. It's like a 150-kilometer journey. And they didn't have, like, jeeps in those days and planes, and, uh, you know, they had to walk it or donkey it. That far, Mary is in her probably in her late third trimester, ready to give birth soon. But Jesus has to be born in Bethlehem. I mean, how do you get Mary and Joseph to travel down to Bethlehem when she's very pregnant? Now, of course, uh, we might think that's an issue, but that's not an issue for God. I mean. God could have brought uh, Mary and Joseph Down for uh, Through many ways He could have revealed it Through an angel Could have given them a dream Could have like Transported them In in various ways But God decides To put upon The most powerful person On the planet In those days Caesar Augustus Who was worshipped As a god After his death To put it on his heart To issue a census This was no just, Just so happened There was a census This was God moving behind the scenes of world events so that Mary and Joseph would end up in Bethlehem at just the right time, so Jesus would be born at just the right time to fulfill prophecy. I mean, we serve a God who really can do the impossible, okay? We also see God doing the impossible uh, in the Christmas story. I mean, the angel comes up and says, Mary, you're gonna have a baby, right? And Mary says to the angel... How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. That is a miracle. A virgin (laughs) becoming pregnant, right? And then it says, And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. This is another miracle. Because Elizabeth is very old right way beyond childbearing years and yet now she is pregnant there are two miracles here and this is the sixth month with her who has called uh, was called barren for nothing will be impossible with god and mary said behold i am the servant of the lord nothing is impossible with god for god to put on Caesar Augustus' heart to create a census that would just so happen, bring Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem, for God to cause someone who was barren to become pregnant, for God to cause a virgin to become pregnant is not too hard for God. I mean, there is nothing too difficult for God. There's nothing beyond his ability, nothing. Uh, This is called uh, the fact that God is omnipotent that is god is all powerful as jeremiah 32 says lord god it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm nothing is too hard for you that nothing is impossible with god it's one of those verses luke 1:37, that you should have memorized in your head that nothing is impossible with god Now, some people, trying to be funny, will say, well, well, there's got to be some things that are impossible for God. And you know what? Indeed, there are. There are certain things that are impossible for God to do. And the Bible actually mentions some, like Hebrews 6. It is impossible for God to lie. Or James 1.13, God cannot be tempted with evil. Or 2 Timothy 2.13, He cannot deny Himself. And so when we talk about God being all-powerful, It means that God can do everything within his character and who he is. That God will never act against his character. He's not going to lie. He's not going to cheat. He's not going to do anything that is against his character of love and holiness and and all those things that are characteristic of God. God also can't do things that are, are probably logically impossible. Like people joke, you know, can God make a rock so big that he can't lift it? Or can God, you know, you say God can do everything. Can he make a, you know, a square circle? I mean, those kind of things are logically impossible. I mean, it'd be like me asking a single person, what's the name of your wife? Right? It it just doesn't work. And and so God can do everything within the realm of, of his character. And in his character, there is nothing that is impossible. And this is one of those things that we need to hold on to tightly in our life Because one of the most devastating things that can happen is if we begin to fall into a place where we think our problems are bigger than God. There's nothing that will discourage you quickly, nothing that will cause you stress and cause you to freak out more than when you fall into the trap of thinking your problems are bigger than God. And this happens sometimes in in the Bible. I mean, uh, the story of the Israelites leaving Egypt is a classic example. I mean, they're in bondage for 400 years. And finally, a deliverer named Moses is is raised up, and he's going to rescue his people. And God says, you can do it, Moses. And Moses says, I can't do it. I'm not good enough. I don't speak good enough. I'm not talented enough. God, I'm not the right person. I mean, I'm not good enough. My problems are bigger than your abilities, God. And God was like, no, 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 no. I'm with you. My strength is greater than your weakness. You're going to be okay. So he goes, and, and you know, the ten plagues are released on Egypt, and finally God, uh, Pharaoh lets the people go, and they, they get cornered at the Red Sea. I mean, they just witnessed God do ten amazing miracles, and now they're trapped, and all of a sudden, their problem is bigger than God. We're going to die. We should have stayed in Egypt where there's no hope. But there was hope. Because God is always bigger than your problems. And so God, through a miracle, delivers them through the Red Sea. And after that, they get hungry and think they're going to die of hunger. And they're getting angry at everybody. Because, again, their hunger is bigger than their God. And God says, it's all right. I can give you food. And he does. And he, he waters them and, and all these things. And then finally, they get to the promised land, the place that they were wanting to go. After all these miracles, they get to the promised land. They send 12 spies in to check the land. And when they come out, only two of those 12 spies think that God is big enough to bring them into the land. And, uh, and it says in Numbers that Caleb was one of the guys who thought, who believed in the big God. Then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, We should go up and take possession of the land For we can certainly do it. Our God is big. He's promised this. This is not too hard for God. But the other 10 said this. But the men who had gone up with him said, we can't attack those people. They are stronger than we are. And they end up convincing uh, the entire Israelite group and, and they end up wandering the desert for another 39 years before they get another chance. And those people who thought their problems were bigger than God, who didn't think they could enter into the land, you know what? They never experienced the rest of the promised land. And if you allow your problems to become bigger than God, you will never experience true rest in your life. The people who rest well in life are people who get this, that there is no problem, there is no issue, there is no situation that is bigger than the God we serve. And so I just want to look at a whole bunch of scripture for the rest of our time, just looking at all the different areas that the Bible speaks of God's power and his ability that we might just begin, uh, again, be refreshed with the idea, God is so amazing and so big that we have nothing to fear. So we all uh, see that God is big enough to move world powers and governments. We see that in the Christmas story. God causes the greatest and most powerful person on the planet, Caesar Augustus, to issue a decree. Daniel 2.21 says, God controls the course of world events. He removes kings and sets up other kings. Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. you ever pick up a little bit of water in your hand and you can put it this way or this way? This is what God is saying he does with the the kings of the world. Even kings who did not believe in God. Uh, Jeremiah 27, it says, Now I will give your countries to King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, who is my servant. I've put everything, even the wild animals, under his control. And King Nebuchadnezzar wasn't someone who followed God. He was rebelling against God. He was, you know, he had his own ways, but... God was, he's more powerful than anyone, than any world government, than any king. God used Nebuchadnezzar as his servant to accomplish his will in disciplining the nation of Israel and Judah and other nations. I mean, there is no government that is too strong. In fact, this is why the Bible says we're to pray for our governments. In 1 Th- Timothy chapter 2, it says, I urge that requests, prayers, intercessions, And thanks be offered on behalf of all people, even for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. I mean, if God were not bigger than our kings and our governments, why would he ask us to pray for them if he can't do anything? I mean, the very fact that he asks us to pray for our world governments means that God is bigger than our world governments And God works through the prayers of his people. Okay, God has partnered partnered with us, his church, and if you want to see movements and governments, one of the things that we are required to do biblically is to pray for them. Because God is even bigger than world powers and governments. We see that God is also big enough to create anything he chooses. Revelation 4.11 says you created all things, and they exist because you created what you please psalm 19 says the heavens declare the glory of god the sky displays his handiwork day after day it speaks out night after night it reveals his greatness i mean do you ever wonder why god created a a universe that is whatever they say 13 billion light years across because we've been talking about all these galaxies and we can't even see you know all that stuff—we don't even know what's out there. Why in the world would God spend, you know, make all these stars and galaxies that we can't even see? The answer is right here, because night after night it reveals His greatness. Because God is so mighty and so great that He He creates this universe just to to say, "This is how great I am. How unfathomable I am." As much as, I mean, you come across. This house that a carpenter builds, and it's just an amazing house. It speaks a lot about the carpenter. That's an amazing carpenter. Look at his skill in making it that we look at the universe, and it just speaks of the greatness of our God. That he, he created all that just with his word. I mean, there's no problem you have that is bigger than God. God is big enough to heal any sickness. I mean, Matthew 8 16, it says Jesus healed all who were sick. There is not one time ever in the Bible where it says, and God couldn't do it. Not once. I mean, there is no sickness that is too difficult or too hard for God to heal. It is just as easy for God to heal a splinter or a common cold as it is for him to heal the worst kind of cancer. There's nothing too difficult God. Uh, God is big enough to rescue people even from death. We see in Daniel chapter 3 that Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego, they're thrown in a brick kiln. And they don't die. Because God in his sovereignty chose, it's not time for you guys to die. We see Acts chapter 12 that Peter is thrown in prison. Herod is going to kill him. God rescues him before his death. But interestingly enough, you know, just before this, James was thrown in the same prison and he was executed by the sword. I mean, we don't always understand why God rescues some and he doesn't rescue others. But the Bible says he's able to, that there's nothing too hard for him. He's even big enough to raise the dead. John 11, Lazarus is raised from the dead. Matthew 9, Jesus raises a little girl from the dead. 2 Kings chapter 4, Elisha raises someone from the dead. This this is our big God. God is also big enough to control nature and weather. In the book of Exodus, we see him controlling uh, the plagues, which had a lot to do with weather, opening the Red Sea. In 1 Kings 17, we see that he causes and ends a three-year drought, Matthew 8, Jesus, just like that, calms a storm. I mean, there is no weather, there's no pattern or thing in nature that is beyond God's ability. God is never up there and saying, no, I can't do anything about this. God is powerful enough. God is also big enough to control, limit, and destroy Satan. Matthew 8 says that Jesus drove out the spirits with a word. Again, there is never a time where Jesus is like, I can't do this one. Just with a word, Jesus will drive out demons in people. In fact, in Luke 13, it says, a woman was there who had been disabled by a spirit, a demon, for 18 years. She was bent over and could not straighten herself up completely. For 18 years, this demon tormented this girl physically that she could not stand up, Jesus comes along and he saw her and he called her to him and said, woman, you are freed from your infirmity." Then he placed his hands on her and immediately she straightened up and praised God. 18 years, the demon attacking her and Jesus comes along and with one word places his hand on her, bang, demon is gone. There is no demon, there is no guy called Satan who is bigger than God. I mean, they're not arch enemies like two superheroes battling out, you know, you know who's going to win? Is it going to be Satan? Is it going to be God? I mean, Satan is a created being. I mean, he is a flea compared to the God who created the universe. And at any time, God can say, that's it, you're gone. And we do know in Revelation 20 that at one time in the future, with one word, God is going to end Satan's Power. He will be sent to the pit for forever and ever. Now the question always is, well, if God can do that, why doesn't he do that now? I mean, I'd like that if it got rid of Satan. But again, God has this sovereign plan. He is ordained for this period of history that Satan has a certain amount of control and power so that we might have a choice between following evil and following following God, but know enough that God is big enough to control, limit, and destroy Satan. God, at times, is even big enough to interfere with people's free will. Did you know that? It's one thing, if you read through the Bible, and we think that God can never interfere with people's free will. He does it all the time. I mean, he is big enough to change people's hearts, right? Acts 15 says, the Lord opened her heart to respond to what Paul was saying, or the opposite end, hardening hearts. Exodus 4, I will harden his heart. Or the most mysterious verse in the Bible, I think, 2 Timothy 2, it says, perhaps God will grant them repentance and then knowledge of the truth. That God can grant people repentance and, and knowledge of the truth, that God is able to change hearts. That you never can get to a place where, you know, God can never reach that person. That God can never get into his heart. He can. That's why we are called ambassadors with Christ. That part of our role is to be praying for people. I mean, you want your spouse's heart to change? I know someone who can do that. God can. Pray. Because God is able. You have someone at work that you want their heart to change? God is able to do that. That's so why the Bible is constantly saying that we need to be people of prayer because I can't change people's hearts. And I've preached for years and years, and some people never change, right? I can't do that, but I know God can. Okay? God is able to change people's hearts. There is no one in your life whose heart is so hard that God cannot break in. He is able. God is even big enough to change the way people think about you. You know that? Some of These weird verses. He did this to Joshua. Joshua chapter 3. The Lord told Joshua, Today, I will begin to make you great in the eyes of all the Israelites. So God, like, puts, changes the hearts of the whole nation of Israel to like Joshua. Not ah, cool, eh? Now they will know that I am with you, just as I was with Moses. That day the Lord made Joshua great in the eyes of all the Israelites. And for the rest of his life, they revered him as much as they revered Moses. That that even a lot of like, you know, know how popular I am. Don't don't worry about that stuff. God can make you popular if he wants you popular. He can, right? You just, just love Jesus, love people, and you leave that part up to God, right? He is even big enough to change the way people Think about you. God is also big enough to work evil and suffering into good. There is no evil. There's no event that is so horrible that God is like, I'm helpless. God can take the worst thing and work it into good. So what the Bible says. Romans 8 says, we know that all, not not some things, not just a few things, that all things work together for the good of those who love God who are called according to his purpose, that if you love God, the promise is no matter what hardship, suffering, turmoil you're going through, God can work that into good. Sometimes that promise is very hard to hold on to or even hear when you're suffering, but it doesn't change the promise, okay? Uh, Genesis 50, this is Joseph who was sold by his brothers into slavery, who Was thrown in prison, who had a lot of suffering in his life, looked back and said this to his brothers As for you, you meant to harm me, but God intended it for a good purpose. So he could preserve the lives of many people, as you can see this day. That Joseph, looking back on his suffering, could see how God was working that into good. And a lot of times when we go through suffering, we can look back and see how God is working that into good, but not always. I mean, sadly, sometimes we just got to wait till we see God face to face before we're going to see what was really going on in, in the big picture. God is also big enough to know you intimately. And, and, and the problem sometimes is this, that when you think about someone who is that big, you ask, well, what do you want with me? Like the same verse Dana read. Right, when I look at the night sky and see the work of your fingers, I mean, just Think about this universe, 13 billion light years across that God stretched out with the palm of his hand. It says that it's so small to God, and God is vastly bigger than that. When you think about that, the moon and the stars you set in place, what are mere mortals that you should think about them, human beings that you should care for them? Like, we're so tiny compared to this big God. I mean, does he even like us? Because usually big things don't like little things, right? Right? I don't like fleas. I don't like little parasites. I don't like little bugs, right? Because I'm big, right? Elephants don't like mice, right? And and, and you might like you know y- your favorite movie star, right? You might like they wouldn't want anything to do with me because I'm just Jesse, right? And they're famous and I'm not. He wouldn't want to hang out with me, right? Big people and little people just don't always get along. But it's different with God. God is the biggest thing by far in the universe. He's at every point with his whole being, as we talked about last week, but and he loves us. And he knows us so intimately. And there's not one little tiny issue in your life that God does not see. In the Old Testament, one time the people were complaining that God, you're so big, you never see our problems because you're busy you know, controlling that galaxy over there. You don't know what's going on in my life because if you did, you'd fix it, right? And God answers look up into the heavens. Who created all the stars? He brings them out like an army, one after another, calling each by its name. Because of his great power and incomparable strength, not a single one is missing. O oh, Jacob, or O oh, Junction Church, how can you say the Lord does not see your troubles? O oh, Israel, O oh, Junction Church, how can you say God ignores your rights? Have you never heard? Have you never understood? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of all the earth. He never grows weak or weary. And Jesus says, what is the price of two sparrows for one copper coin? But not a single sparrow can fall to the ground without your father knowing it. And the very hairs on your head are all numbered, right? Just think about that. I mean, there's not a single person in your life that knows how many hairs you have in your head, let alone numbering them. No one loves you that much, right? There's no one who loves you so much that you count. You don't even love yourself that much to count all your hair, but God does. And he's like, man, I love each and every single one of those hairs in the guy's head, right? He loves you so intimately. So don't be afraid. You are more valuable to God than a whole flock of sparrows, that this is our God. He is all-powerful, and he is all-loving. And then we ask, well, then why does he let this happen? We don't always know. That's why we go back up and say God is loving, and God is all-powerful, and I just, I just I don't get the big picture. But I know that through this, God is working things for good. I know that through this, that God is in control, that he's not looking at my life or your life and saying, it's out of control. God is in control. God is in control, and there is nothing too big or too hard for God. And because of that, God can do such incredible things in our lives. And one more verse, and we're done. Ephesians three twenty. Now glory be to God, by His mighty power at work within us. That that same power that created the universe, you know. If you're a Christian, it's at work in you. Because God has moved into your heart. And sometimes you just need to let that power out a little bit and recognize that power that is in you. And then it says, He is able to accomplish infinitely, not just a little bit, but infinitely more than we would ever dare to ask or hope. God can do more in your life than you could ever imagine. More than you could ever hope more than you could even even pray. I mean, you could just start thinking about the great things that God could do in your life, and God's like, I can do more. I can do bigger. I can do better. I can do greater. Because he's able. And we just need to learn to take this truth and live by it. And a lot of people know this truth, but they don't live by the truth. The truth will set you free. If you take this truth and just put it in your mind and live by it, it will set you free. Nothing's too hard for him. All right? Let's pray. Father, we thank you today that there is nothing that is too hard for you. There's nothing that is too difficult for you. God, even the situation we're facing today is not too hard. There's no addiction in this room. that is too hard for you. There's no depression or discouragement in this room that is too hard for you. There's no health issue that is too hard for you. There's no sin, there's no evil that can overpower you. So God, would you draw us towards yourself, into your arms, the loving arms, God, that you give us. God, I pray for anyone in this room who is struggling with things and, and falling into the trap of thinking their problems are bigger than you. I pray, God, that your word may take life in them. That they would live by your word, not just hear your word and let it fade, but would live by your truth that nothing is too hard for you. God, I pray you would live this out more in our lives, that we would pray like this is true. That we'd be praying for our spouses like this is true, that we'd be praying for our governments like this is true, because it is. God, that you can change people's hearts, you can change governments, you can change situations, you can change health, you can change anything and everything for your glory. And so God, as we go from this place today, we ask God that your spirit might rest upon us in greater ways. God, we pray that any discouragement that is robbing joy, As we approach Christmas, God, we melt away in the presence of your love. God, I pray for families to be reunited this Christmas. I pray for grace to empower us. I pray, God, that you would help us to love people as you've loved us this Christmas. In Jesus' name.